All right, on today's podcast, we have Robert Schiller. Robert is a Nobel laureate, meaning he's won the Nobel Prize in economics. He's got the hardware. He's professor of economics at Yale. Go Bulldogs. He's written countless papers, articles, and books, including Irrational Exuberance, which predicted the bubble inequities in the year 2000, as well as the housing crisis. He's the Schiller in the Case-Schiller Indices, which we now measure home prices with in this country. And he's the author of the 2019 book and the main subject of today's discussion, Narrative Economics. How are you, Robert? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. Did I miss anything there? <laughs> well, I, I've had a long career. Uh, you, you've got the highlights. It's good. All right. So before we get into narrative economics, let's touch a bit on your book, Irrational Exuberance, which admittedly, I've, I haven't read that one. Um, I am familiar with some of the highlights. Uh, and in 2005, you you added, you appended to it because it was written in 2000 to say that the housing market was overheated at the time. Um, and you laid out the CAPE ratio, which is the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, uh, right. also known as the, the Schiller PE ratio. So for my, my question for you to before we dive into narrative economics is right now, the S&P's Schiller PE ratio is at 37.29. So, so 37.3 times earnings. And it's the only time it's ever been higher is from November 1998 to November of 2000, when the price of the S&P peaked in December of, of 1999. And the Schiller PE ratio was, was 44.2 times earnings. So what do you make of the high in the Schiller PE ratio right now? Well, this is a, a case of a rare event. Uh, there's, there's only one other time when it was approaching this level, and that is 1929. So the past two times uh, when the CAPE ratio was high, it was followed by a crash. Okay? But that's only two times. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, there's always uncertainty about the stock market. It's hard to forecast the stock market. So I'm thinking that uh, part of the reason that the U.S. I'm talking, we're talking about the U.S., uh, which has a much higher CAPE ratio than other countries. Uh, part of the reason the U.S. stock market is so highly priced is that there is a narrative, uh, which may be uh, right. <laughs> the narrative is that the United States is the world leader in information technology and the communication services. And there's a, a sort of American genius behind this. And it will continue, especially now uh, when we're much more of a uh, virtual reality. <laughs> the, the world is changing. A lot of things that we used to rely on, like railroads, to get to our sub subways or uh, uh, that you would get to work on, uh, that may be not needed so much. And so we, we need other things. So there is the idea that America is worth every penny. Okay, it's especially strong here. Uh, but, you know, I think it's strong abroad, too, that foreign investors uh, are noticing that we produce Google and Amazon and other Microsoft. So there is the, the, the American success narrative. Uh, and 
when I write a book called Narrative Economics, I'm not saying that the narratives are always wrong. Uh, they are viral because of their appeal. And the, there can be both a genuine appeal and a, uh, a spurious appeal. Uh, in this case, uh, you're never sure uh, about what, uh, what the market uh, is going to do. So uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not being alarmist about this, uh, but it does worry me. I think if you were to distill what you just said, it, it kind of sounds like there's a, a, a premium on the safety of American companies right now and, and also just a, a premium on the innovation coming from America. A, a previous guest on this podcast is Ben Hunt, who also has done a ton of work on on narratives. And, and he has a post where he talks about how a, a lot of it, a, a lot of investing really just comes down to the flow of, of capital and it kind of seems like right now there's a narrative out there that the reason why so much money has been put in equities is because there's kind of nowhere else to put it. Right. Do, do you think there's there's any value to that that narrative right now? Well, interest rates are low. So uh, in that sense, there's nowhere else to put it. But uh, there are low CAPE ratio sectors or stocks, and there are the rest of the world as well to invest in. So uh, I, I think most discussions of the level of the stock market don't point out that it's the U.S. market that is the, the, the highest, and it's, it's a U.S. phenomenon. So I, I think that a, a sensible portfolio now would have some U.S. stocks in it, but uh, maybe less than most U.S. investors do. We have to understand that our patriotic zeal it uh, is a good thing in many ways, but it might lead us to uh, ignore some investments uh, that are uh, not so overpriced. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think I think that's good enough for uh, to dive in. I had to get the you know the quote on the topical issues of the day, but this is the Narrative Monopoly podcast, and we're we're going to be talking about narratives here today. So I'm going to jump into actually chapter three of this book, um, where you basically you you describe what are constellations and, and confluence of narratives and also talk about right. contagion. And a big piece of this book is making the analogy uh, that narratives spread in similar fashion to infectious diseases. And now I, I'm sure that you wish that it turned out a different way, but the timing of that analogy, yeah. it, it makes it, it makes it really simple for people to understand now because so many people have become uh, you know, familiar with the contagion rate and the recovery rate, which you dive into. So I, I'm going to read a quote here from the book, and, and then we'll, we'll take off from there. Quote, a, a key proposition of this book is that economic fluctuations are substantially driven by contagion of oversimplified and easily transmitted variants of economic narratives. What do you mean by right. that? Yes, well, the, the stock market moves in mysterious ways. So does the housing market. Uh, why should that be booming right now? So is the bond market. <laughs> uh, uh, we had interest rates on 10-year treasuries that were about a half a percent uh, in the summer of 2020. Uh, and what, that's awfully low for a 10-year rate. Uh, you'd think that people would expect more than that over the next 10 years. So these, there, there are always mysterious forces that seem to be driving. Uh, one reason why I think we don't understand them is uh, that the forces are not really recorded by uh, 
economic data collectors. They do have questionnaire surveys like the Gallup poll, uh, but they don't get into the narrative. They just ask you simple questions. Uh, they don't ask for a story. So some stories are going contagious, uh, like, uh, like diseases. Uh, but the reason that they're going contagious is that they just have some immediate appeal. There might be a celebrity who's connected with it. And people love to talk about celebrities. Or it may be uh, kind of a joke-like uh, thing, a, a funny story. Uh, in fact, that's part of what uh, spreads uh, ideas, uh, just simple jokes. Uh, economists feel it's undignified, have felt, <laughs> It's undignified for them to, re, to, to talk about such things. Uh, there's also a problem that uh, narratives seem to have a lot of variance. Uh, and uh, it's, that's why I talk about constellations of narratives. There's a lot of similar narratives that take off in different directions. And that we don't have a good way of quantifying them and uh, reporting statistics on them. So it's impressionistic. And most economists don't want to be impressionistic. They're supposed to be experts. Uh, and maybe most economists just don't have the patience. You'd have to read kind of uh, bad stuff sometimes. <laughs> it's not just the elite newspapers. It's also the tabloids and the uh, scandal sheets that, that might spread narratives. Uh, so it's something that is not, but university libraries tend to subscribe to distinguished books by impressive authors. And they don't, they don't uh, subscribe to the junk stuff. <laughs> yeah, you, you touched on the, the contagion and the constellations there. I think uh, we'll get into the contagion, but for the constellations, I mean, I, I actually do think that this was probably the one thing that I uh, took away from this book is most important because, you know, you talk about how they're, they're tangentially related. I think here, here's a great example that most people will understand is, and, and what you just said around uh, kind of like the highbrow information may miss this stuff. You know, you'd only be able to find out about uh, the GameStop stuff from Reddit, right? From Wall Street bets with anonymous people in it. Right. Um, right. And in that constellation, you have uh, now Dogecoin, which is, which is quite literally a, a joke of a cryptocurrency that's spiking as we're talking. Yeah. And then in that constellation is, you know, populism uh, on the political side and they all kind of like touch each other. And, and those things that are, are tangentially related actually do influence each other. Is, is that kind of the argument you make in the book around narrative constellations? Yeah, uh, you know, another thing that's happening and I'm not an expert on this is neuroscience is developing. And now there's even a society for neuroeconomics that has regular meetings. You could, now they're virtual, you could jump in onto one of them. Uh, so we're learning about the human mind. Uh, and one thing we're learning is that the human mind is very uh, structured to, uh, uh, to appreciate human things. Uh, so uh, in the fusiform gyrus of your brain, you have, uh, maybe it's not just there, but you have uh, facial recognition technology, which is very advanced. So you can recognize an individual at a, in a flash. You know, in a fra if, if you're shown a photograph of someone for a fraction of a second, you can positively identify, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, 
that's why does this evolve? Why do people have this uh, uh, It's because our, our uh, uh, ancestors would, they weren't living in the computer age. They were living with people. And, and uh, uh, it was very important to be on top of who said what and uh, what warnings are being issued. Uh, and so we have channels of communication that are ancient. Uh, they're built into our brain. Uh, and the brain uh, is structured to keep stories together. There's like a tape recorder in your brain <laughs> that records the details of stories. So we're, there's a certain tension about uh, how much stories are really viral. There are people who, um, who think that no story can last very long because the mutation rate uh, in, in transmission of a story from person to person is so high. Uh, on the other hand, there, there is the so-called telephone game. You know, this game where you have oh, yeah. uh, participants to tell a story to another and then to another and then to another, and it comes out garbled at the end. Uh, but the problem is that the people who do the telephone game are trying to fix stories that mean nothing to anybody. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, and I think that it's not so bad that the other, other example is our um, folklore studies experts uh, who find that certain uh, stories that uh, people tell in the family are thousands of years old, like Little Red Riding Hood. That's been traced in a, dif in a distorted way, but a, a story of a little girl who was uh, deceived by a wolf and she was wearing a red coat uh, or Jack and the Beanstalk uh, that's a thousand years old, and maybe more. Uh, so, so stories do stay with us if they if they have some kind of human quality that is uh, that is stimulating. I I do think you know there's there's two things in that. It's it's you know you even have in this book you have examples of uh, neuroscientists proving uh, that parts of the brain activate just as you said, and specifically around. Uh, you know, you say contagious metaphor or contagious narratives often function as metaphors and that, you know, the brain becomes reliably active when they do MRIs right. in the brain, when they hear that. Right. And then the second piece of that is kind of how you go into uh, how these narratives can actually almost be reversed engineered from, you know, the biology piece that you're talking about, where if you have someone who's famous, you have something that's memorable, you know, you just said Little Red Riding Hood, the, the example that you give in the book uh, is, is the napkin from the Laffer Curve story, which yeah. apparently is not even true. That was the game of telephone, right? It occurred on a, on a right. next mutation. It just made it more memorable because people can imagine in their mind the little, the, the napkin. It's like the story of Bill Gates you know, when he releases the mosquito in the, the malaria talk and people remember the mosquito and then they remember the malaria. And so I, I think you do a good job of documenting, you know, how people can can kind of engineer that. Do you think that that is something that is conscious in, in a lot of these narratives that bubble up that, you know, you have to have these pieces of the puzzle to actually make them go viral? Well, uh, there are people who thrive on narratives and they tend to be successful as politicians. To be a successful politician in any country, uh, you have to understand what, uh, what the people are talking about. And they tend to manage uh, their uh, narratives, uh, successful politicians. In extreme cases, like Adolf Hitler, he actually hired uh, a school of, of speakers 
and sent them out. He had thousands of speakers who gave his party line. They were given instructions like, never admit you are wrong. <laughs> okay, you're never wrong. Just try to, if someone points out a factual error, just brush it aside. And then another thing I was just reading the other day, Hitler had instructions to his photographers that he should only be uh, photographed in, in uh, inspirational uh, settings. <laughs> and he should not be seen as an ordinary human being. So there are very few pictures of him leading a domestic life or talking casually. He's always making a bombastic speech to a roaring supportive crowd. Uh, so you create uh, a narrative uh, and it can be very uh, uh, constructed to be contagious. Right, right. And then the, the contagion rate, which which is the, the next piece of that, almost the, the distribution piece, you know, you talk about how it's just like a, a an epidemic uh, disease where, you know, you have to have a contagion rate higher than the recovery rate. So if more right. people are talking about it, uh, it has to, that has to be higher than the people who are, are forgetting about it. Um, how, how did you come up with that? Because there's actually, you know, a, a good amount of math in the back of the book that yeah. <laughs> digs into this. Well, I've been thinking about this for uh, 40 years. <laughs> so I wrote a paper in 1984 uh, called Stock Prices and Social Dynamics uh, that mentions epidemic models. So I, I've been thinking about it a long time. Uh, also, how did I come up with uh, the mathematical models that epidemiologists uh, use? Uh, it partly reflects a philosophy of science that I have, that it's, it's advantageous to read in other disciplines. Uh, so in any given department, there's a sort of uh, esprit de corps that develops. And we're smarter than anybody else. And we don't even read other journals uh, uh, from other fields. Uh, I also sometimes asking uh, uh, professors that I have in my own university, where is the social sociology department located after all? <laughs> they don't even know what, sometimes, they don't even know what building the sociology department is in, let alone know who's there. If you want to be successful in academia, you do specialize and it can get specializing too much. So I, I figure that we have a school of public health at Yale I haven't been very good. I've never gone to a seminar there. They don't know I exist. Maybe they know I exist, but that's about all. But I, I, it's a philosophy of mine that now it's that, that uh, a lot of the breakthroughs in science occur at the junctures of different specialties. Uh, and it's good to listen to what others are doing. So epidemiology became a, a favorite of mine. And I've included it in my lectures, macroeconomic theory for many years. And this is your idea of uh, consilience, if I'm saying that right? Right. So, yeah, the, uh, the word consilience was coined in the 1840s by a philosopher of science in the UK uh, named William Hewell. Uh, he invented a word. And what it means is the unity of, of, of all the uh, intellectual disciplines. It was, again, a statement of the idea that one should try to bend effort to learn about what other disciplines are capable of doing and not to be too socialized into your own department. That was E.O. Wilson wrote a book maybe 20 years ago. He's a biologist called Consilience. Uh, and he's an example. So for example, he studies ant societies. Okay. Ants have a society. They have uh, a queen. They have battles with other ants. 
and they, they have territory that they defend uh, and specialized jobs for different ants in the ant colony. Uh, so uh, what economists, there are some economists who study ants, okay? They don't have money. They haven't gotten to that stage yet, but they do have a society. So one should be doing uh, uh, pleasure reading. I think, yeah, I recommend reading Wilson. He's interesting, but he's not talked about very much in economics departments. Is your argument that the, you know, the, the combination of what is essentially uh, science and humanities and in consilience, that that discipline will increase accuracy in economics, that adding the stuff that is harder to measure, not impossible, but harder to measure. I mean, it is possible, yeah. impossible to measure word of mouth, but, but harder to measure is the goal to increase accuracy in, in the field of economics. Well, yeah, it's, it's a question. I, I don't have a science of consilience. Uh, maybe it's, it's not that well-developed because you could go too far into reading just everything and never specializing. Uh, and and uh, also for young scholars who are pursuing tenure at a university, uh, maybe they are best advised. Not quite. I, they, they would be more toward the I'm going to stay within the bounds of my profession and do some groundbreaking research. Uh, but once you get tenure, uh, I think that you want to shift a little bit toward uh, becoming a, a broad reader and uh, trying to think about how, uh, how we can uh, uh, deal with some of the anomalies that uh, are observed. Any economic theory or any theory has anomalies that don't seem to be quite explained by the theory. Uh, and you have to be uh, keep thinking about those and reading, uh, uh, looking for other toolkits to design a uh, study of them. Now, now, narrative economics, in a sense, and you've, you've touched on this, has been a lot of your uh, kind of the culmination of your life's work in, in adding this this piece to the yeah. uh, economic pie. Um, or economics by, uh, do you, do you see this or do you want this to become a discipline in the same way that econometrics is, is kind of a sub-discipline in economics? Well, I think there has to be some specialization. Yeah. Within limits. That doesn't mean I want to create a department of narrative economics okay? because they won't talk to the other economists. Now, another cause that I've been behind for 30 years is behavioral economics. Uh, and uh, I, that has become more and more, behavioral economics is economics and psychology. Uh, the method used is often experimental. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll have an experimental market and they'll observe how people behave in it. Uh, so we, we, we can do experiments, uh, but uh, that's not, uh, a separate department. It's gaining acceptance uh, in uh, in mainstream economics departments, uh, and that's what we want to see happen. Uh, we want to. We don't want over specialization and a um, uh, an antagonism. By the way, I also like mathematical economics, <laughs> and so I think they have a lot to offer too. Right, right. I I, I think just in this scenario, um, narratives appear to me to be the vectors which drive behavioral economics right 
Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, that, that hasn't been the main emphasis, though, of behavioral economics. So behavioral economics is not really talking about the stories that change economic behavior. They, talk, they tend to talk about fundamental economic uh, or psychological issues. For example, overconfidence. Most people think they're above average. Not everyone. You have something called the inferiority complex that some people have <laughs> who feel inferior to other people. Uh, but most people, when they approach investing, say, if they have an initial success, they'll start to think, to define themselves as a, a brilliant uh, uh, stock picker, and then that can lead them to make mistakes. Uh, but the, the behavioral economics does identify a, a lot of uh, psychological principles. I think it's closest to psychology. They like, psychologists do experiments also. Neuroscience seems, uh, I think that's starting to grow in economics too. But sociology, uh, which is very basic to narrative economics, just doesn't have a, uh, a fan club in the economics departments. And I'm not sure just why, but uh, it, it's not, uh, there, there is socioeconomics that sociologists do, but I don't think it's talked about very much by uh, economics department members. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I can't say that I'm I'm well versed on the uh, the <laughs> the intricacies of 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 the cross uh, disciplines in uh, in the academy. But let's let's switch gears for a second uh, and, and go back to narratives. You know, there's there there's kind of this paradigm that's commonplace on Twitter where um, you know it's really easy for things to go viral on Twitter because all you have to do is push a button, the right, retweet right. button to everyone and it's this huge multiplier effect uh what often happens when there is a a fake piece of content there's a tweet that that contains a falsehood is the falsehood is is you know it's it's dramatic it's it's sexy it it you know it it, it attracts a lot of attention and it right. results in going highly viral and it ends up with you know, tens of thousands of retweets. But then when there's a correction, a few hours later, a few days later, whatever it is, the correction never gets any attention. And right, right. you put this very eloquently in a book with, with actual data. You say that, you know, truth is not enough to stop false narratives. You say the illusion won out even after it had been decisively disproven because the proof did not spread as fast as the illusion. And that was in reference to uh, a first world war narrative. Um, so is this just baked into humanity or, 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 you know, is there any hope for, for truth in, in terms of viral narratives? Well, yeah, there is a hope for truth uh, in the sense that uh, we are an advanced society. Our airplanes fly. They don't crash very often. Uh, and uh, when you go to the doctor, you generally get good advice, but but I, the equilibrium is not perfect. I, I wrote another book called, with George Akerlof called Fishing for Fools, The Economics of Manipulation and Deception. Uh, and uh, we, we consider it a, a fault of the capitalistic system. We still like capitalism, but a fault of the capitalistic system that it encourages marketers uh, to uh, put things out that uh, are manipulative. So we have the example of uh, uh, a monkey on, we, we all have a monkey on our shoulders, okay? which is our primitive brain, which is uh, uh, not our refined judgments. 
the monkey uh, is uh, impulsive and grabs at things. So if you were shopping in a grocery store with a monkey on your shoulder, the monkey would be shopping too. It would not be enlightened. It'd be grabbing things, eating them on the spot, that sort of thing. They can open packages, by the way, monkeys can. So the marketers aim for the monkey. I'm not against marketing, by the way, as a profession. It can be, it's a powerful tool and it can be used for good and bad, both. Yeah, I, I do think that a lot of the uh, heat that, that advertising takes is more so uh, part of a narrative um, in that, you know, if you have a product and you want it to reach more people and it solves their problem, you can pay to do that. I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. As, as far as as far as the, the truth and narratives, though, what is it about the fact that it's often the narrative that doesn't contain the kernel of truth that forces it or not forces it, but, but kind of creates this environment where it does have a higher contagion rate, or maybe that's not true at all. Maybe that's just, yeah, it's, it's very hard to define what causes the contagion rate. Some people have a gift for doing that and they tend to be uh, screenwriters (laughs) or politicians uh, others, most of us, uh, never understand why something went viral. A, a, a certain uh, personnel or certain, you know, if you, if you were asked to, list, to listen to the latest pop music just before it was released, I, you'd have trouble telling which ones are going to be. And, and even if you could tell, you couldn't put it into words. What, it is, what is it about this song that is so appealing? Uh, and you might uh, feel disparaging of the songs that, that are are most popular. Uh, And I give the example in my book of the song, Happy Birthday to You, okay? Is that a favorite song? (laughs) Well, uh, it turns out that it was written by, uh, in the 1890s, but I didn't have Happy Birthday in it. And it was uh, some unknown person substituted the words Happy Birthday. It was Good Morning to You initially. Then it became Happy Birthday to You. Uh, why is it so contagious? Because it's it's built around a story now. It's the birthday party, which weren't, you know, it used to be that the birthday parties 100 or 200 years ago that we heard about were saints' days. It would be the birthday party for a saint in the church. But they developed into a, a tradition of a, 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 a um, ritual that we go through on people's birthdays. Uh, it's confirming of love and friendship. And, and there's, there, there's an actual ritual that we go through. You, 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 bring, you bake a cake and you decorate the cake and then you put candles, one for every year. Uh, and then you, uh, you bring it out with great fanfare. You know exactly what I'm, and you sing happy birthday to you. That I think is the most popular song in the world. It started in the United States, which tends to be an exporter of culture. Uh, but now they sing it every country of the world. It's in China. It's in uh, the Arab countries. It's all over. Uh, And is it because anybody likes it? You'd have to reflect on the contagion. Why is it so popular? I think it's because it's become associated with a narrative. I've just described the the birthday party narrative and the ritual and the repeated. uh, We have, we all know the song. That's because we've been to so many birthday parties (laughs) that uh, not necessarily a you know a, a big shindig, but just a, a birthday occasion, 
and we all sing it. Uh, so everyone, that makes for a very high contagion rate. You know, the thing is, when it started out, the authors of the, of the song had no idea what they were doing, uh, that it would be so contagious. It was a couple of women who wrote the song uh, who were, uh, they put it in a book of music for kindergarten. <laughs> okay. Good morning to you, the same melody. And they never got rich off of it. Well, that's, I, I think that's your, your point around repetition, right? Is it's got that perfect hook where it's just, you know, on your birthday, you gotta, you gotta sing this song. And I think you make the point in the book around uh, October, I think it was October 29th is, is the date of the crash where every year, even though there's no data to, to support it, like, you know, in, investors just get, uh, you know, real nervous yeah. right. because that can happen. Yeah, the, the, uh, the 29 crash was a, uh, developed into a powerful narrative. Uh, if you look at old newspapers, uh, there wasn't, you know, the, the, the New York Stock Exchange goes back to 1792 when it was founded, but the newspapers didn't talk about it. Uh, and they had financial panics, but there was no stock price index like the Dow Jones Industrial Average until 1890s. But when they developed the Dow Jones Industrial Average, only experts, uh, you know, uh, nerds <laughs> read about it. It wasn't, uh, it didn't seem, but the idea that it was a barometer of the economy, and a, a forecast, a guru, like tea leaves or something, really developed strongly in 1929. Uh, and then stories around that, that, that uh, people jumped out of buildings uh, because of the stock market, they killed them. There was, uh, but long ago, John Kenneth Galbraith pointed out that the suicide rate really didn't go up in 1929. <laughs> Not many people killed themselves because of the crash. But that's the story that somehow the stock market is the, uh, it's like taking the temperature of the economy. They want to know every day what the stock price, what the Dow Jones the industrial average is doing. Uh, that's a narrative uh, which has grown very strong. The Great Depression narrative is stronger now than it was during the Great Depression by a long shot. I, I thought that that was a, a very interesting part of the book where you talk about how uh, there's there's kind of this lag in distribution of these narratives. And, you know, the, the actual, uh, I don't want to call it a, basically a myth uh, of the Depression became stronger as time time went on. And with each uh, each economic recession or stock market crash and you, you also uh, go into the, the the actual term uh terms boom and crash and how they came to be but with, yeah. with each of those um you know like 2007 it's almost as if the the depression and and what happened around uh october 29 was was worse than what actually did happen and then that idea actually comes back and impacts the actions that people take in the moment, let's say 2007, for example, and it's based off of these, these narratives that have grown over time. Right, so in uh, 2009, there was a powerful rebirth of the Great Depression narrative uh, and the 1929 crash narrative. Uh, it came back again in 2020, uh, between February and March, uh, the market lost uh, over a third of its value in the United States uh, in a matter of one month. Uh, and what were they talking about? Well, we, we now know we, we have social media. So if you do a Google trend search, 
you find these things, uh, uh, attention to the Great Depression suddenly came up. So narratives can suddenly become contagious uh, because circumstances change, which operate like a mutation in a virus that brings a, a second wave. We've seen that in COVID-19. There were several waves in, in many locations. They also show that these things are somewhat regional. Uh, but I think it's less regional now than in the past because of the social media. Uh, also, uh, disease viruses are less regional now too because people are traveling around the world and spreading much faster internationally. So this may be a, a viral age we're moving into, both for thought viruses, that is narratives, and uh, disease viruses. Yeah, one, I mean, one narrative from the Great Depression that you pointed out is, is probably actually not true, which, which was the uh, Joe Kennedy selling all of his stock after uh, or all of his positions uh, after he, the, the shoeshine boy gave him a yeah. tip. Uh, actually not true. Well, it goes back you, earlier. That narrative is attributed to other great men, always men, <laughs> before that. Yeah, I mean that's that that's the mutation right there, and then it picked up on you know as you said someone who is is famous and, and recognizable, so you can actually remember that because if it was just you know some guy with a, a bunch of concentrated positions sold, you know no one would remember it. It's the fact that it was Joe Kennedy is why you remember it. Right. Although Joe Kennedy is is gradually slipping in the uh, he was a narrative for a while, and I think uh, I have to check that he's probably declining. It's a sad fact. I hate to emphasize this, but we'll all be forgotten eventually. So the hump-shaped pattern of overall pattern for narratives, for diseases, maps into narratives as well. Uh, some people uh, grow uh, after they die for many years. Karl Marx, for example, didn't he died in 1880s, uh, and uh, he didn't peak in terms of uh, narrative strength until the 1970s, and he's still pretty high. Uh, so uh, that is the contagion of the Marx narrative has, has been very strong. When I think about uh, antiquity and, and, and deep into the past, I mean, can probably only name five people. I mean, <laughs> Alexander the Great, uh, yeah. Genghis Khan. I mean, there's really not that many. And they were all uh, good at narratives. Alexander the Great issued coins with his picture on it to give a visual image to the stories about uh, and Genghis Khan, uh, there was a book that was written by his, uh, it, I think, around the time of his lifetime. The Secret, what is it called? I tried reading it uh, 20 years ago. It was, it was another contagious narrative in its day. Well, I think that that's really interesting that that, you know, when you talk about contagious narratives, it goes back. Uh, all the way, all, all the way that far in history, because my initial thought when picking up this book was that internet distribution is what caused this, and then I, then I obviously, you know, read the book and realized that uh, a lot of these narratives became contagious way before we had internet distribution. But my question to you now is, how does internet distribution change uh, the contagion rate of, of these of right. these narratives? Well, the, yeah, the internet is, uh, uh, it, it, it can cause a very big multiplication because it, well, it moves very fast, minute by minute. It also allows people to uh, identify with subgroups that are scattered geographically. And uh, it used to be that your next door neighbors mattered a lot. 
Uh, they're starting to matter a lot, again, during COVID-19 because we're isolated and we can at least find our neighbors. But offsetting that is, is Zoom uh, and uh, other uh, communications uh, media, which uh, so I think there'll be more um, crazy narratives that sound crazy to people outside of a, a certain group. Uh, and uh, it's a little worrisome. There's also a question of the future of social media, whether they'll be censored or manipulated by powerful forces. I don't know where we're going in history. It's, it's a major event, the development of social media, and uh, it's a viral event. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're obviously still in the, the very early innings of it as well. And, and so it will be interesting to see in 100 years what the, the narrative economics book is uh, reviewing what happened in, in this century regarding internet distribution. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the contagion rate, it also seems like the recovery rate would probably increase as well because there's just so much information flying right. at you. Yeah, there, uh, there's a new technology for starting narrative. It's called clickbait. <laughs> you notice that when you get onto a website, they have all these little photographs. It all has a visual image and, and some little uh, five-word sentence clip, like uh, they'll name a celebrity and they'll say, of years past, look at how she looks now. <laughs> You're tempted to click. There's probably some bad, really horrible-looking old lady. <laughs> you just kind oh, yeah. of were tempted to see it. Uh, you, can, you can multiply those kinds of clickbait narratives infinitely. Uh, uh, until you learn, uh, it's part of growing up these days not to click on clickbait. But the, the science of influencing people, of going viral, is is expanding. Marketing, is, uh, for good or ill, is becoming a growing force in our lives. I, I would I would push back on that. Uh, in that, I, I would say a lot of what uh, Pulitzer and and Hearst did with yellow All journalism right. was 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 probably clickbait. And you couldn't right. really opt out as easily. That's right. Yeah, I talk about them in, in my book. And uh, there was a reaction to yellow journalism. So, yeah, it, 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 there was a, a period in the U.S. when tabloid, uh, lowbrow tabloid newspapers dominated. And they, uh, they got us into a war in the United States, the Spanish-American War, uh, with uh, stories about Spanish atrocities that weren't even true. They were rumors. Uh, and uh, I think that's one reason why yellow journalism faded somewhat after that. It never went completely went away, but people developed newspapers that they trust in certain newspapers and, and they uh, have for many years continued to honor that trust. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's certainly something to be uh, study moving forward. Well, let's let, let's get to the closing segment, which is actually tied to the beginning segment, uh, which is your your recent New York Times op-ed, a look looking back at the first Roaring Twenties to understand where the stock market be, may be heading. A Nobel laureate examines the pop culture of one of the greatest bull markets in history. So we we touched on uh, the, the the Cape Ratio before, but now. Uh, to tie this together, mixing the the science and uh, the humanities, you you talk about the pop culture piece. So, what was the 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 central theme of that that article for the listeners? Yeah, I spent a lot of time. Uh, well, first of all, the biggest ten year increase in stock prices 
was from 1919 to 1929 with my monthly data, real increase. The, the real value of an investment in stocks reinvesting dividends went up sixfold in 10 years. That was 20% a year appreciation on average. Uh, and that's the biggest. People are starting to refer to the current decade of the 2020s as the second roaring 20s. Uh, because we have seen a tripling of the stock market in the last 10 years. And it seems to be, uh, it seems at least the narrative is that it's uh, poised to go even much higher. Uh, so what I wanted to do was try to see uh, how similar the uh, current uh, bull market is uh, to the 1920s bull market. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, it, it's hard to do this. It's hard to be precise as, as we'd like as academics. Uh, I ended up reading some of the popular culture. Um, and uh, uh, first of all, as the 20s wore on, there was more and more discomfort with the idea that the stock market is such a great investment. They, they, they started talking about the price earnings ratio in 1928 in newspapers. Uh, there was never a single mention of the price earnings ratio in any newspaper that, that, that's uh, indexed that I can uh, search before 1928. So, uh, but the market kept going up. You know, it reached record high price earnings ratio. Uh, and, but uh, everyone was faced with the same un, uh, uncomfortable situation. The, the, the Boston Globe called it uh, an uncomfortable, no, it was the New York Times, I think. Uh, it was an uncomfortable situation, uncomfortable feelings uh, that we as investors have now. Because we've missed out, many of us have just missed out who haven't been in the stock market. Uh, so it, it became a big narrative. The shoeshine boy really was talking. That was in the roaring 20s that that, uh, that that story really took hold. The shoeshine boy really was giving stock tips to the, his uh, patrons. And uh, the um, amateur investors were flooding into the market then. Uh, well, it's the same now. We, ha we have a big increase in retail trade. Uh, back then, there was more of a party-like atmosphere. They had meetings at brokerage services or, or bucket shops until bucket shops were outlawed in many states uh, in the 1920s. Bucket shops were places where you'd go and bet on stocks without buying them, and they were shady. You know, they would—they were like gambling casinos built around stock investing. So they kind of disappeared before the very end of the. Uh, 20s, but brokerage firms uh, were putting in uh, customers' rooms, and they had a, a thing called a Translux movie ticker. This is in the 1920s that would show uh, an image of the ticker tape to a large crowd in the in the customers' room, and they would they, men would go there and hang out. Women started going there <laughs> to the customers' rooms, so it, it, there was a party atmosphere about this, uh, which we see somewhat today. I don't think it's a direct mirror of the Roaring Twenties, but it, it wasn't, hasn't been as big. I, I worry, though, that it might continue. So it puts me in an uncomfortable uh, feeling. Uh, and so I imagine many other people feel the same way. If you got into the market now, it would be late in an expansion with near record high tape ratios. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, it keeps going up. 
And so maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe in the United States, it's because of the advent of technology, that uh, information technology is emerging finally into a, uh, and you're going to lose your job because you're doing something menial that a computer is going to replace. Uh, you better get into this information technology world, at least as an investor. It's that sort of narrative that we have now. It, it is so hard if you're putting your own money to work right now, because on one hand, as you say, the, the, all of the signage looks exactly the same as uh, previous time points in history where there was about to be a bust. And at the same time, as you mentioned, it just doesn't feel like it's ever going to stop party's not going to stop and maybe maybe you know this this time is different you know maybe uh you know so, something's different because i think that you know as much as uh history repeats itself uh there's a first first time for everything so maybe it isn't uh, a necessarily a bust maybe there's a correction or something like that L- let me let me let's, let's finish on this um there is what at least seems to me uh, a a new narrative which can which the contagion rate far outweighs the recovery rate right now, which is inflation. Um, so have you taken a look at uh, any of these indicators of inflation, whether that be, um, you know, obviously we just talked about equities, but also input costs, like the the cost of lumber I saw is, it has, I think, forexed in the last uh, few months. You know, there's, there's a lot of different uh, indicators right now and home prices, obviously, so, so do you have any any thoughts uh, if you you know put on the economist hat around what's going yeah. on with inflation? Well, once uh, just for you mentioned home prices. When home prices are high uh, and demand is, that means uh, it becomes advantageous for builders to build homes, unless lumber prices <laughs> crowd that out. Uh, but it involves those who uh, cut lumber plant. They'll, they'll increase that supply. So there, there will be a supply response. Uh, I think that this boom in housing market is a little different from others in that people are less, it's less important to be close to a center city and you can build somewhere in a beautiful spot farther away if you don't have to commute. But we'll see how much this stay at home thing continues. But I think we're learning how to do business at home. So that means that the, existing home prices might fall as the supply response picks up. Now, going back to in, in, uh, inflation, I have a chapter in my book on inflation narratives, but I, it's on my agenda to think through this uh, again. Uh, inflation, in, but I talk about the wage price spiral narrative, uh, which became popular in the 1970s, and it blamed inflation on labor, and, and particularly often on labor unions. Labor unions were going through a, a, a public relations disaster then. Jimmy Hoffa, the, the mafia-style labor leader, uh, was bumped off by his rivals. That kind of stuff was going on. And the, the idea was that labor uh, represents certain workers and is, is uh, just uh, unrelenting in its demand for increases. And the wage increases uh, force uh, uh, that they have to yield to, that manufacturers have to yield to, lead to force them to raise their prices. And then the next year when labor negotiations occur again, the labor union will say, see, the consumer price index has gone up. 
we need even higher wages. That's a spiral. You know, it goes from wage to price to wage to price. That narrative was very powerful in the 70s and 80s. I've started to see it coming back. <laughs> we'll see if that narrative comes back, which makes, which gives people a sense that uh, inflation is a hopeless problem. We can't solve it. Uh, we did solve it. Around the world, inflation has come down among most countries of the world. Uh, and there's no other reason that than change in narratives and, and Federal Reserve or central bank policy that uh, responded to the narratives. So I, I, I'm still thinking about what to expect about inflation uh, uh, and what kind of narratives might uh, come back. Uh, but uh, bond yields uh, have been incredibly low and that reflects uh, a, uh, a feeling that people had just a few years ago that inflation was solved. There's nothing more to worry about it. Uh, now they're starting to worry about it. So that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy again. Yeah, I think the one piece that is not an, a narrative, it's, you know, I, I have to, I'm pretty sure I have this number right. And it's at least for sure in the, the neighborhood, which is 25% of all dollars were printed over the last year. Um, <laughs> and so, so I think that that is, is probably also uh, what's contributing to the narrative and, and perhaps, you know, already working its way through the system and, and actually creating yeah. inflation. Yeah, the money supply has gone up in ways that would make Milton Friedman gasp. Milton Friedman was a strong proponent of, man, uh, of a, a fixed growth rate for money supply. Uh, it's gone way up. Well, I think, uh, I, I think that the listeners of this episode will, will have a lot to, to think through, whether it's in terms of investing or making day-to-day -day decisions. Everyone should buy your book. I thought it was great. Learned a ton. Uh, it, it was also a, a fairly quick read, which I like, uh, Good. which I think is a strong selling point. But uh, but yeah, it's great. Narrative Economics by Robert Chiller: How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Thanks for thanks for coming on the, the Narrative Monopoly podcast. Well, Jeff, it was nice talking to you. Thanks, Robert. Take care. Bye.